Well, good morning. Welcome today. Glad to have you here. If you're new, if this is your uh, first time with us, uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thank you for joining us. I hope you just uh, enjoy your time together. Uh, well, it's Christmas time. You know that. It's, uh, the kids are out of school. Uh, you know, your gifts are purchased and under the tree, right? If, if they're not, you're probably starting to panic a little bit. Uh, but you got a little time. So anyway, we're excited. Christmas is here. Hope we see you all at the Christmas Eve service. Uh, but in the new year, in the new year, we're going to start a series about relationships. Just four weeks. Uh, but we're going to talk about relationships because, you know, uh, relationships are under a lot of pressure these days, especially especially the ones that are closest to us. And, and often there's this pressure for them, you know, they're splintering and, they, and there's just... It's not always easy, and yet it's so important to us. And so we're going to spend four weeks, beginning on January 8th, and we're going to talk about things like friendship and marriage and, and purpose in relationships and sex and, and family and community. And so I think it's just going to be a, a really uh, a, a helpful conversation. We're going to seek God's wisdom for how to do it. And so I just want to encourage you to invite your family and your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors. I mean, whoever. Let's, let's and join us. We're going to talk about how to live and, and pursue these relationships that are so important in our life in this day that we live in, in these days. Today, uh, we come to the last part in our series on the very unique genealogy that Matthew sets out for us at the beginning of his gospel, his bi biography of the life of Jesus. And as we've been saying, it's unique, not because it doesn't, you know, track Jesus' lineage all the way from him, all the way back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith. But what makes it unique is that along the way, he continues to insert extra names and to highlight different stories in the history of the lineage of Jesus. But these aren't stories Except for, with one exception, these aren't stories that are, that are good stories. They're rather the kind of stories that you'd kind of, you'd rather be, you know, the tendency would be to, to, to sweep them under the carpet, to, to ignore them altogether. And yet, all along the way, Matthew highlights these stories. So the first one we talked about was Judah and Tamar. And it's, it's a story about this kind of creepy, weird couple and some of these sort of very unsavory things that they were involved in. And yet it's a story of God's grace, how even that, though they were involved in some of those things, God and his grace used them to be in the line of the Messiah. Because it's not in spite of people like that, but it's because of people like that that Jesus came. And then last week, Pastor Dan uh, talked to us about Rahab, who was, had this label, the, the, the prostitute, the, the sex trade worker. And we talked about, he talked about how, how, you know, so often we're labeled and identified by things that we have done, but that we can have a new identity through Jesus. Totally changes who we are and how, how we understand ourselves. And, and, and so we talked about those two stories. And both of those stories, both of them uh, are about people that are kind of on the periphery. People who do things that most of us wouldn't approve of, wouldn't be necessarily involved in. And, and how God worked in the midst of it. But the, the, the third story that we're going to look at today is about the opposite. It, it's about a person who is at the very center of it all. The, 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 in fact, besides Jesus, he is the most important person in the entire genealogy. It's King David. And in fact, the, the whole genealogy is about connecting Jesus to King David. In fact, listen to how Matthew begins the genealogy, how he begins his gospel. He says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, 
the son of David, the son of Abraham. I mean, Matthew starts out seeking to connect Jesus directly to David because every good Jewish person knew that the Messiah must come from the house and the line of David. So that's what Matthew sets out to do. And of course, David is the greatest, the, the, the most famous, the most highly revered of all of the kings of Israel, right? I mean, his exploits are legendary. Uh, he was a shepherd boy who wrote such amazing psalms that we still read and sing them today. He, he's a gifted artist, right? He ended up, uh, you know, killing a giant, uh, Goliath, with simply a, a sling and a stone. He had this famous friendship, this incredibly rich friendship with the son of the king named Jonathan. He became one of the most famous generals in the army of Israel, so much so that they, they sang his praises when he and his troops marched by. And then even when he became uh, the target of Saul's jealousy, King Saul was jealous of him and, and tried to kill him. Even then when David had opportunities to, to strike back, he doesn't. And ultimately, he ends up as the most revered, most esteemed, most respected king in all of Israel. I mean, he, he is like the guy who everything that he touches turns to gold. And maybe, maybe you've known people like this, right? I mean, these are people who like, you know, in high school, they were like not only the captain of the basketball team, but they were also the president of the student council. And they got top grades almost without seeming to work at it. And then when they went to college, I mean, they, they had all these doors open up for them. They had these incredible adventures. And you listen, you're like, I never had an adventure like that in my life. And you already did that when you were in college. And, and then they, they married well and their career took off like a rocket. And they have a beautiful, perfect family. And on top of all of that, on top of all of that, they're good people and they love God. And, and they serve in the church and they serve in the community. And they're the kind of people who either you love, you're like, oh, I love these people. They're so amazing. Or you secretly are a little jealous. Maybe you despise them a little bit. You say, I could never be like them. Everything they do is perfect. And these are the kind of people that we have a tendency to put on the posters and say, like, this is the picture of a good Christian man or a good Christian woman or of a good Christian family. And that, that's what Matthew could have done with David. I mean, after the story of Judah and Tamar and, and after pointing out Rahab the prostitute, when Matthew comes to David, to his family, to, to this man, he could have said like, look, here's the picture of what it's supposed to look like. I mean, th th this is what a, a righteous, godly man, a follower of God looks like. That's what he could have done but he doesn't. He, he won't. Because you see, the, the story that he's about to tell, the, the story about Jesus, that begins with his birth and ends with his death and his resurrection, is not about how a good, godly person like David can just, you know, be good with God and have it all right and, and live a, a wonderful life. No, no, the story that Matthew is going to tell is about a Savior who came so that everyone, no matter who they are and no matter what they have done, could have peace with God. And so, and so when it comes to David in this genealogy, Matthew can't help but highlight 
One of the worst experiences in David's life. Here, here's what he writes. Here's the, here's, the, here's the genealogy. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. There's, there's Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. There's, there's Rahab the, the prophet. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Now, we haven't talked about Ruth. That's a good story, but there's a whole book about her story. So we're going to talk about that at another time. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. There it is, that last little tag that he adds in there. David was the father of Solomon. And he adds by the wife of Uriah. And, and he just can't let this go. He highlights here one of the, 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 the stories in David's life that was his greatest failure. And the question is, why? Why, Matthew, would you do this with such a revered and deeply respected king of Israel? And the answer is because, because often we get to think that there are those who just get it all right, those who have no problems, those who do things so well that of course God loves them, of course God pours his blessings out on them, of course God, they, you know, of course they're good Christians, of course, because they do it so right. And Matthew wants us to, to know that we all have baggage, that we all struggle with sin, that we all need a Savior, even David. Even the man after God's own heart. Even the king for whom everything he touched turns to gold. No matter who we are, we need a savior. So let me remind you a little bit about the story here that, that Matthew is, is referring to. And I'll, I'll go back and just kind of give you the outline of a little bit of what's happening in David's life. The story of David uh, begins a thousand years before Jesus Christ is born. And it begins with a prophet in that day, a man named Samuel, going to a little town called Bethlehem. And this is the first place where the, the, the city of Bethlehem or the town of Bethlehem is mentioned in the Bible. And Samuel goes to Bethlehem because God has told him to go there to anoint the next king of Israel. And so that's what he does. And, and when he gets there, he arrives at the house of a man named Jesse, who has eight sons. And he says, let's, would you bring your sons out and, and and Jesse assembles his seven sons. And Samuel begins to walk through and, and look at each one to determine if this is the one that God has anointed to be the king of the next king of Israel. So he comes to the firstborn. The, you know firstborn, right? Handsome, tall, capable as a firstborn. You know, I understand why this would be the natural choice to be the king. But God says no. So he goes to second born. I mean, second born, born spunky and, and outgoing and a little bit of a rebel. And, and he's like, this would be a good king. And God's like, no, third born. Well, third born is learned from the first and the second. Probably the third born would be best. And God's like, no, not that either. And he walks through all seven and God says, no, 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 no. And when it's all done, he's like, well, Jesse, is that it? Do you have any other sons? And, and just like Jesse is like, yeah, I, I got one more, but he's just a kid. He's just a shepherd. And Samuel must have sat down and said, that's okay. We'll wait. Let's bring him here. And when they bring in David from the, from the fields, he's just this young boy. He's just, he's just taking care of the sheep. And God says, that's your man. And Samuel anoints David and David becomes the next king 
the second king of Israel. And flip forward a number of years and David is in his palace. And he's just kind of reflecting on what's happened in his life. He was a shepherd boy out in the fields and now he's the king of Israel and, and the nation responds to him and armies fight at his command and he lives in this incredible, beautiful palace. And as he's sitting there, he looks out the window and he sees the place where the Ark of the Covenant is. Now the Ark of the Covenant, if you're not familiar with this, this was a, a piece of furniture that literally represented the dwelling of God himself. And he looks out and realizes that it's, it's in a tent. It's in a tent called the tabernacle. But, but, but he thinks to himself, let's see if I got this right. I'm living in a palace and God is living in a tent in the backyard. That's not right. And so he decides to build a temple for God. And just as he gets going, God sends to him another prophet, a man named Nathan. And Nathan comes to David and says, David, I have some good news for you and I have some bad news. The bad news is that God doesn't want you to build the temple. He's going to get your son to do that. But the good news is that God has some promises that he wants to make to you. Here, here's what God says through the prophet Nathan. He says, now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And now, now God begins to make a series of promises to David. And here's the first one. He says this, Now I'll make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. That's quite a promise. God says, Your name will be so great, you'll be so famous, that you will be counted with the most famous people in the history of the world. And in fact, it's the case, isn't it? I mean, most of us, or at least many of us in this room, are familiar at least with the name of David and who he is, and around the world, millions of people are to this day. And it's over 3,000 years since David was on the scene. God keeps his promises there. And then, and then he goes on in verse 11, he says this, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. So David wanted to build a house for God. Now God says, no, 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 that, that's later, but I'm going to build a house for you. And by that, he means a lineage, a, 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 a family line that will follow after you for, for, for years and years and years. And then, and then he goes on to add to that. He, he, he talks a little bit about his son. And then he says this. He says this. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now think of that. that. I mean, that's an incredible promise. David, there will always be one of your descendants who sits on the throne forever. I mean, imagine, I mean, you could just think of how often kings would be deposed and families would be destroyed by another king coming in. And now God says to David, not yours. There will be on the throne of David forever someone who will reign. Those are significant promises. And if you go back and read through that chapter, you see that they are unconditional promises. I mean, there is nowhere that God says, David, if you do this, then I will do this. No, no. He just says, David, I'm going to do it. And frankly, when you read it, you think, well, yeah, why not? Look at David is like this perfect guy. He, he loves God. He's doing everything that God asks him to. He's honoring him. He's the guy that obviously God would make the promises to. Except except when you get about four chapters down the road. And there, the Bible tells another story. 
It turns out that the day comes when David's army is out in battle. And David's at home, and he's on the rooftop of his palace, and, and now looking out, not seeing a tent uh, that the God is, you know, that God is in. Rather, he looks in a different direction, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. And he says to himself, I want her. And he sends his men to find out who this woman is. Turns out her name is Bathsheba, and she's the wife of Uriah. Now, he knows Uriah. He's fought with, alongside Uriah for years. In fact, Uriah is listed as one of David's mighty men. He, he's one of his closest, most valiant warriors. And Uriah's off at battle, and David says, I want her. And so they bring her to him, and he has her. And then he sends her home, and it's all good in his mind, except that he got her pregnant. And so this is a problem. And so, so what he does is he sends for Uriah, who's at the battlefront. And he calls him. He says, uh, basically, he says, uh, he looks for an excuse to bring him home. He says, give me a report about the war. Uriah reports. He says, okay, thanks. Why don't you go home, hang out with your wife, spend the evening. I'll send you back tomorrow. Except for that Uriah doesn't go home to his wife. Instead, he sleeps at the door of the king's palace where everyone can see him. And the next day, David's like, wow, what are you doing? What, what, I sent you home. And Uriah says, look, all of, my, all of my comrades are fighting in the battlefield. They can't be with their wife. And if they can't be with their wife, then I'm not going to, I'm not, I, I, in good conscience, I can't go home to my wife. David's like, okay, okay, come for supper tonight. And that night he has Uriah for supper and he gets him just totally drunk. And then he sends him home and he says, okay, Uriah, go home. Spend the night with your wife. Relax, enjoy. And then we'll send you out tomorrow. And once again, Uriah, drunk as he is, will not go home. Instead, he sleeps at the door of the king's palace. And by this point in the story, you start saying, well, maybe Uriah would be a better choice for king than, than David. And then, and then it, the story records that the thing that, that David did next was one of the nastiest, dirtiest, most vicious things done recorded in the Bible. He, he, that next day, he, he wrote out an order to Uriah's commanding officer, telling him to put Uriah at the front of the battle, then to pull back to allow Uriah to be killed in the midst of battle. And he rolls this thing up, he seals it, and he hands it to Uriah. This man that he knows and has fought with for years and years and whose wife he's already slept with and it's his death warrant and he says, please deliver this to your commanding officer. And he does and, and that commanding officer then does exactly what David orders him to do and Uriah is killed in a battle. And then Bathsheba mourns for the appropriate amount of time and then David brings her to be his wife. Problem solved. David keeps his squeaky clean, you know, image in front of everyone. He's the poster boy for how to be a godly man. And nobody knows the better except God. God knows. And that thing is going to come out. You just know it. I mean, sin, sin always comes out. You could try to hide it. You could try to push it down. You could try to cover it up. But it always does. I mean, we just see it even now. I mean, you, you watch the news. There's all kinds of Christian leaders who, who try to hide things. It just comes out. But it's not just Christian leaders. I mean, it's leaders all over the place. There's people all over the place. It's just, it's like a law of nature. That God has designed that this sin just kind of 
bubbles out, sometimes quickly, sometimes a long time from when it happens, but eventually it always comes out. And so now God sends the prophet, the same prophet to David, Nathan, and he confronts David. And to David's credit, he confesses fully and completely. There's no sort of statements like mistakes were made or there was a lapse of judgment. No, no, no. David says, I have sinned. And he takes full responsibility for what he does. And you can read his confession and his prayer in Psalm 51. And, but now this man, this man who, who had it all, really, who was at the center of everything, this man to whom everything he touched turned to gold, who, who was the, 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 the picture, the, the, virtue, the, the paragon of virtue, the, the poster boy for God the living. Now he has really screwed it up. And God has made all of these promises to him that he would have this line that would flow from him and sit on the throne of God forever. And, and, and now the question is this, will God keep his promises to David? I mean, it wasn't a little thing that he did. He, he totally screwed it up. I mean, he, the founder, the, the, the beginner of the, of the great line of kings of the, of the people of Israel turns out to be adulterous. Some would argue a rapist because of his power differential between him and Bathsheba and a murderer on top of that. And the question is, now what, God? I mean, are, are you going to retract your promises? Are you going to pull out the fine print? Will you maybe just try to find someone more suitable to kind of slide in and kind of work with that person instead? And the answer is no. No, God, God doesn't change his promises. He made a promise and it's an unconditional promise. And so God forgives David for what he did. Profound, beautiful. But that doesn't mean that there weren't consequences for David's sins. You see, see, here's the thing about, about sin. Sin has built-in consequences. I mean, it doesn't matter if you believe in God or not. The fact of the matter is sin, by its very nature, has these consequences that flow out of it. It wreaks havoc in relationships. It, 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 it damages intimacy. It sometimes harms your body. Sin sometimes... Um, uh, degrades your compassion. It isolates you from others, isolates you from God. Sometimes it, if, if you do it enough, it'll isolate for you from your own sense of yourself. This is why God hates sin so much, because he loves us so much. And so when he sees this happen, when we do this and it destroys our life, it breaks his heart and he hates the sin. Sin is like, uh, it's like, it's like a poison. It's like arsenic. I mean, you know, sometimes you, you, you sip it. Sometimes you swig it. Sometimes you knock it back. And when you do, I mean, the consequences, sometimes they're, they're, they're delayed and they kind of trickle in. Other times they're clear and quite uncomfortable. And sometimes they're so immediate and so catastrophic. And for David... Because of his sin, that's exactly what happens. The, the, the consequences are almost immediate and they're incredibly catastrophic. The baby that he and, and Bathsheba conceived ends up dying shortly after birth. And on top of that, his family 
splinters into a million pieces. His, his, his favorite son murders his oldest son. And then his favorite general murders his favorite son. And his whole family busts apart. And, and at one point, he literally, his kingdom falls apart and he has to flee. And the, and the kingdom is divided. And his son does things that are so humiliating to him that you can't imagine them unless you read the story. But through all of the chaos, through all of the bloodshed and all of the disaster, God keeps his promises. Because through the, though the consequences of his sin were brutal, God's decision was firm and, and his promise was unconditional, which meant that about 950 years later, with all of this in the backdrop, a man named Joseph, along with his pregnant wife, Mary, arrived in Bethlehem, the city of David, to give birth to a son who would be the the great, 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 I'm getting there. Grandson of King David. Why? Because God always keeps his promises. So if you're Matthew, and you're a former tax collector who understands what it means to, to be forgiven of your sins. And that you can never be right with God because of what you do on your own, but rather because of what has been done for you. And if you're going to tell a story about God's grace and his forgiveness and his mercy and his kindness to a group of people who, who revere, who esteem David like crazy, how can you not? point out this particular story. Because this is a story that under, underscores the entire message of the New Testament, that, which is this, that when God makes a promise, he keeps his promises. And when God makes a promise, it doesn't matter how heinous the sin is, how, how scandalous and how, how bad the sin is, you can't force God to back away from the promises that he made. He won't do it. And so you can imagine that as Matthew is going through this genealogy, as he's writing it down, when he comes to David and he adds this line, the son of Solomon, the son of David, by the wife of Uriah, he says, that's perfect. It's perfect. That, that illustrates what I'm about to tell you. Because you see, what Matthew is about to, to tell us is that God is making a new promise. A promise that is different than the promise that he made to David. The new promise isn't to an individual. The new promise is to all the world, to everyone. And the new promise is, is a promise that is sealed in blood. But, but not in the blood of two parties to, to, to a covenant, but rather by one party. Which means that it is an unconditional promise. And the blood that is shed to establish this promise, to, to say that this is true and is to be, is the blood of Jesus. And through Jesus' blood shed on the cross, God establishes a new promise, a new covenant, an unconditional promise, an unconditional covenant. So, as Matthew begins this story of what Jesus is all about, he, 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 he couldn't afford not to stop and to emphasize this particular story from David's life. 
because David was a man who seemed to have it all together and yet messed it all up. And yet he knew the grace and the love and the forgiveness and the mercy of God in his life. And just as God kept his promise to David, God will keep his promise to us. So with that background in mind, then now listen to what the angels say to the shepherds on that night when Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Here's, here's what they say. They say, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. He says, the, the angel says, the promise that I'm about to bring is for all people. That, that means all people, not, not just one individual. You and I are part of the all. It's like, it's for the good people and for the bad people and the in-between people and the people who think they're better than everyone else and the people who know that they're not better than anyone else. And it's for those who look like their life is all together. That everyone would say they've got it figured out. And yet, who know that they too struggle with sin and brokenness in their life. The promise of Christmas is for all people. And then, and then the angel goes on to say this. Today in the town of David. And here, here's my hope for you. From now on, for, for the rest of your life, every time you hear this phrase. Today in the town of David. Today in the, the city of Bethlehem. When you hear that, may you forever remember that God is a promise-keeping God. That a thousand years after David the unfaithful, David the, 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 the promise breaker, David the guy who leveraged his power for his own advantage, David the guy who wrecked his family, David the one who sent a man to his death, a thousand years later is still the city of David because of the promises of God. God always keeps his promises. He says this, the angel says, it's today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. The one who is born is not just the next in the line in the house of David. He is the Messiah, the savior, the promised one. And then in verse 13, the angels go on to say this, or it goes on to say this. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Here's the promise now. When Jesus comes, he will bring glory to God in the highest. If you understand who he is and what he has done, it, it will cause you to bring glory to God. To worship him, to thank him. That's in the heavens. But then, then on earth, he says, peace to those on whom his favor rests. In other words, those who put their trust in him will know peace. Now, the, the kind of peace he's talking about is not some sort of, you know, end of war within the world and no more conflict. No, no, no. What he's talking about here is rather peace with God. That, that, that's, that's the promise of Christmas. That, that's why at Christmas we light a, a candle at Advent that's about peace. Because the promise is that you can have peace with God. But in order to have peace with God, you have to remove the obstacle which is in the way. And that obstacle is sin. The, the reason that you don't have peace with God is because you keep negotiating your sin with him. You, 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 you keep saying like, God, you know what? I, 
I'm actually not such a bad person. And, and I, you know, I mean, I grew up in a tough home and, and it was, I was just 18 when this happened or that happened or, or God, you know, if you do this, then I'll, I'll do that. And the problem is when it comes to, 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 you know, our interaction with God, it's all about negotiate, negotiate, negotiate. Or it's promise. Like, God, I, I can't pray right now and, and I can't go to church right now, but I, I promise a couple of weeks from now I'm going to do it. Or, you know, God, I, I want to do this uh, and I want to follow you. But first, I got to fix this in my life. And then I'm going to, then I'm going to really follow you. The problem is it doesn't work. That approach. You'll never have peace with God as long as you negotiate your sin with him. The only way to have peace with God is to have your sin removed. And see, th this is the message of Christmas. That Jesus came to do that very thing. No matter how bad it is, no matter what it is you've done, no, I, I promise you it's not as bad as what David has done. If, if you're like, oh, you don't know, I'll say, wait, wait, let me slow down. I'll tell you the whole story again in slow motion in fine detail. Right? I mean, God forgives your sin if you look to him. And maybe, maybe you're a Christian. And you say, well, I, I'm a Christian, but I don't, I don't feel a lot of peace with God. Well, the, 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 the same challenge applies there. You, you're still negotiating your sin through the filter of your failures and, and your promises and your sin. And you can't forgive yourself for something that you've done or, 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 or a number of things that you've done or a mess that you've left in your life or in someone else's life. And, and you just feel like, I can't be right with God until I punish myself enough. Until I am, you know, do enough penance in my mind. And the problem is, again, you, you not understand the message of Christmas, the message of the gospel, which is that you will never be able to do enough to atone for that sin. That's not the point. You, you can't. Rather, it's only what has been done for you that will set you free from the guilt and shame in your life. You can't have peace with God until you come to realize it's not on the basis of what you have done, but rather on the basis of what has been done for you. Matthew is pointing this out all along. I mean, this is something that God has long done. But, but now when it comes to Jesus, is this sort of the, the ultimate removal of the last obstacle, which is eternal punishment of sin. And in its place is, is a new life that comes from knowing Jesus, based upon a new covenant, based upon a promise that is unconditional. And if that sounds, I mean, if, it, if that sounds, well, one-sided, if it sounds like, well, it doesn't seem fair. It seems like I'm getting a way better deal than, than God. That, then, you're, then you're finally beginning to understand what it's all about. You see, this is the good news of Christmas. And you say, well, but what if I go off and sin again? Well, as we've talked about, sin has its consequences. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about how to have peace with God in your life. And, and the way that you do that is by no longer negotiating with God about your sin or about how good you are. Because the promise of Christmas is that it only comes, that peace only comes when we allow Jesus to take the sin from us. When we embrace him and the forgiveness that he offers us. Wouldn't it be nice this Christmas to just be at peace with God? I mean, maybe there's conflict elsewhere, maybe in your family, maybe at your workplace, maybe somewhere else. But, but wouldn't it be nice to just know this Christmas, me 
And God, we're good. It'll be so good for your soul. It'll be it's just, just so good. And, and good not based on anything that you've done. Not because your world looks good, because it seems like you've got it all together. But good simply because of what he has done for you. you know, I want to I I ask you to take a moment now. Just think about that. I just want you to examine your life. You know, maybe there's a place in your life where there's, where, where there's sin. And instead of, you know, issuing statements like, eh, you know, mistakes were made, God, or it was a lapse of judgment, maybe instead you just need to confess it. You just need to own it. Like David, I have sinned and I repent, God. Or maybe there's a place in your world where you think, I can't forgive myself. I know God forgave me, but I can't forgive myself because of the mess that I've made and the, and the problems I've made. And I just need to tell you that, that you're misunderstanding the gospel. You'll never pay enough penance for that. You'll never do enough to make up for that. It's a matter of you saying, God, I'm going to accept that you forgive me. And so I forgive me. Maybe. You know, maybe if people look at your world, they say, oh, man, they, they've got it all together. And you, you have a lot of the good things going. But you know full well in your life that there's a struggle with sin. And I just want to invite you today, between you and God, you confess that sin. And then I want you to say, and God, I accept your forgiveness. I just accept it, not because of anything else that I can do, just because. And I put my faith in Jesus. And I put my trust in him. And maybe for the first time you experience peace with God. Or maybe for the first time in a long time. And that makes for a great Christmas. That is the gift of Christmas to you from God. Would you bow your heads? Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you are a promise-keeping God. That your promise to us is not contingent upon whether we're good enough, if we look good enough, if we've done enough good things. It's simply because you promised that if we put our trust in Jesus and accept what he has done, that we would have peace with you, that you would remove that sin that is such poison in our lives. God, I pray for each of these people here today. God, I pray that this Christmas, that they would know your peace. A peace with you that just sits so deeply in their hearts that even if there's chaos other places, even if there's pressures, even if there's heartache, they say, yeah, but I know that me and God, we're good. So I'm good. And so, Lord, I just pray for each person this day and for myself too, God. May we walk in light of who Jesus is and the hope that he brings us through this day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for coming today. I hope that you've just been encouraged. I hope that this Christmas, that you just experience a deep peace with God in your life. I want to I send you with these words, the words of Jesus. Here's what he says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I mean, this is the hope. This is the peace that we have through Jesus. 
May you go in that peace. God bless you. Merry Christmas to you and your family. Have a happy new year. I will see you soon.